If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 4? If you don't have a Bible, the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 1119, 1119. 1 Peter chapter 4, we will be reading verses 1 through 6. First Peter chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Well, when I was reading this text this week and thinking through it and how to understand it and convey it, I thought of the second movie from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Two Towers. Not the the best, most people love The Return of the King, but The Two Towers has a solid, solid battle in it as well. And this massive battle is a turning point in the whole story. Now maybe you're not familiar with Lord of the Rings, and that is fine, just hang with me for a minute. It's a really simple plot. There are good guys, and there are bad guys. And the bad guys want to destroy the good guys. There's the plot. I'm going to fill it out a little bit more, though. So the good guys, they're small, they're weak. Most of them are not really even what you would call warriors. They're either old or too young. No offense to either of those categories. They are farmers, they're not trained for war, and they're holed up in this ancient abandoned stronghold called Helm's Deep. Now the bad guys, these guys are not so weak. They are bred for war. Their names are orcs, forget that, they're bad guys. They're big, they're fast, and they're strong. And they are coming for the good guys. And there are more of the bad guys than you could count. And you could probably count the good guys with both hands. So it doesn't look well. But leading up to this battle, there's a main character, and his name is Gandalf. And he says to one of his faithful followers named Aragorn, or Aragorn, depending on your fancy, he has to go run an errand. And what he tells Aragorn before he leaves is he says, speaking about the king of the good guys, he says, 
He will need you before the end. The people of Rohan, the good guys, will need you. And then he, he finishes saying, the defenses must hold. He's telling Aragon to prepare for battle. He's saying no matter the cost, no matter the suffering, no matter the difficulty, hold the line. This instruction of Gandalf and the, the story that follows, if you've watched the movie or have seen the movie, I think it echoes what Peter is telling us in our text this morning. In these verses, we have one command. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. This is a call to arms. And the exiles reading this letter are called to arms because there's a battle. They are in a battle, and that battle does not have a foreseeable end. And so the text's point, and our point today, is Christians, prepare for the battle of suffering. Prepare for the battle of suffering. Now maybe you're wondering, how do we prepare for this battle? It's a very big term, and there's a lot of ways we can think that we need to prepare for the battle. Fortunately, though, Peter gives us three truths in his text, in his call for us to arm ourselves. He gives us three truths that help us arm ourselves for the battle of suffering. He says that we are to arm ourselves by remembering Christ's work, by following Christ's way, and by trusting that Christ has won. Essentially, these three truths are the different pieces of armor that we need to arm ourselves with. We need to remember Christ's work, follow Christ's way, and trust that Christ has won. So let's look at this armor. Let's look at the first piece. As I said, the point of this passage is to call us to arms. We read the command in verse 1, arm yourselves. That's, that's the overarching main idea, arm yourselves. But what we arm ourselves with is very interesting. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Your translation might say the same attitude or the same purpose or the same mind. It's a very different way of arming oneself than we may initially think of in our minds, right? We think of knights putting on their armor and getting their sword and making sure it's sharp and getting their helmet on. We think of weaponry, physical training. We think of armor and getting ready for a physical battle. But what we read here, for the Christian to arm yourself is to think a certain way. This is your armor. A certain way of thinking. And in part, it means to know a specific truth. It means to know a specific truth. Our first piece of armor is to remember what is true. Of the new reality that all Christians experience. Look at verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. Our call to arms is standing upon this truth that Christ has suffered already. Now the point is not simply that because Christ suffered, we arm ourselves with Christ as our example. We'll get there. That's part of it. But the first way of thinking is to remember Christ's work, that he has suffered, and what that accomplished. To say that Christ suffered in the flesh is Peter referring back to chapter 3, verse 18. Look there with me. He says, Now who is there to harm you 
Oh, no, sorry, 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The point here is that Jesus suffered for sins. And that his suffering culminated in his death, which chapter 2, verse 24, then says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So he died, he suffered. Why? So that we might die to sin. That we might die to sin. So we see that his death, his suffering, it has two purposes, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But the first one, that we might die to sin. This is the power of the gospel. This is the foundation that our call to arms is standing upon. Jesus' death on the cross paid for your sins. Yes, absolutely. But he also killed sin and its hold on you once and forever. As Christ bore all the sins of his people on the cross, he took their sin with him down into death and killed it with him. So that when he rose from the dead, your sin laid slain and he rose victorious over it. While he lived, the sin of his people remained dead. He effectively and finally put to death sin through his death. John explains this in his letter. 1 John chapter 3, he says, you know that he appeared, speaking of Jesus, in order to take away sin. And then later, three verses later in John 3, 1 John 3 verse 8, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He has effectively taken away the power of sin for his people. But then we have to ask, but how does that apply to me? How does this affect me? Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, Paul, that's a really interesting statement because you're alive and I can see you. How can you have been crucified and how can Christ be living in you? I now live this life in the flesh or, and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is through our faith in Christ that we are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. Peter has been talking about this for the entire letter. He comes out in chapter 1, verse 3, explaining that we are united to Christ in his resurrection, so much so that as he rose, we now have a hope forever that we too will rise. And then chapter 3, verse 22, we saw that through our baptism, which is a symbol of our faith in Christ, that through our baptism, we are showing that we are united to him in his dying into the grave with our old sinful self and his rising victorious over sin. We are united to him in his death and his resurrection. And now we see that through that union, sin is dead to us. We are no longer under its rule. We are no longer held in its grip. In one sense, this is why verse 1 goes on to say, for those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. You have ceased from sin. 
Through faith in Christ, you have been united to him in his death and his suffering to the point that your sin, in your sin, you have suffered and died as well. And therefore, in one sense, you have ceased from sin. This is not to say that you will not commit any sins. There is no Christian this side of death that does not sin. But regarding its grip on you, regarding the guilt of sin and the shame, you have ceased from it. You are united to Christ. Romans 6, verse 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Jesus defeated sin once and for all in his suffering. And by our faith in him, we receive his suffering as our own. We have ceased from sin. Now, what does this mean for us, Christian? What does this change? It means that there is no sin that you cannot kill. That there is no sin to which you are bound. You are free from the snare and the grip of sin. What is the sin that you feel has a hold of you and that will not let go? What is the sin that only you know about and that you fear you will carry forever? You feel ashamed to admit, Christian, in your union with Christ, you have freedom from that sin, from the guilt and shame, and you have the power to say no to it. That's our first piece of armor, remembering what Christ has accomplished. He has effectively defeated sin. And friends, it's essential that we start here because this is the truth that gives us the power to put on our next piece of armor, to follow Christ's way, to follow him into suffering. Peter starts with, hey, Jesus accomplished your freedom from sin, Therefore, starting back in verse 1 of the command, therefore, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, so the command to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking is twofold. The first being, remember Christ's work to know a specific truth. The second is resolving to follow Christ's way. The second is to follow Christ's way. Christ's suffering has accomplished for us freedom from sin, and it has left for us an example to follow as we fight against sin. To arm ourselves with the same way of thinking means that we share in purpose and intention. This word's only used in Hebrews 4.12 in the New Testament, but what it means there is that we are linked in thoughts and it's where it's intentions of the heart. It's It's not only a thought or a belief, it is a purpose and an intention. And what is the purpose? Well, what purpose did Jesus have? What was his way of thinking? To do the will of God. 
Jesus said in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the same mind that we are to put on. That's why in verse two, we see, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, not for human passions, but for what? For the will of God. The same mind that Jesus had, doing the will of the Father, the one who sent him, we are to have the mind that we follow the will of God. Now what exactly, though, is the will of God? I didn't look it up, but I should have. I wonder how many books have been written on the will of God for you in your life. Isn't that a question we hear people ask all the time or something we pray for all the time? To know what God's will is for us? We hear people say, I'm just praying to know God's will or I wish I knew what God's will was. Well, friends, Peter has great news for you. He's been telling us over and over again in this letter exactly what the will of God is for you and for me. Are you ready for it? God's will for you is that you seek holiness and cease from sin. That's simple. Maybe simple, not the right word. Is that you seek holiness and cease from sin. Look back at chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Then chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Then again in 2.24, we read it a second ago. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God's will is for his people to seek holiness and abstain from sin. That's why Paul, Peter goes on in verse three to say, all these things that are the passions of the flesh, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We are to not seek those, we are to seek what Christ sought, the will of God. Just like a child wants to grow up and be like their parent, we want to grow up and be like our father. We want to abstain from what he says is wrong, and we want to be like who he is. And so, one question we need to ask is, is this our understanding of Christianity? When we think about our own faith, when we communicate our faith to others, do we communicate it as simply a get-out-of-hell-free card? Or maybe just a, we need to get you to pray, and then you're good to go. While salvation certainly does deliver us from hell and all that entails the punishment for sin, and while the means by which we are saved is entirely grace that we receive through faith, it's not our works, to be a Christian is to be called to a new life as well. Dead to sin and to live in righteousness. Dead to sin and to live in or maybe even to righteousness. And so if you profess faith in Christ this week, friend, I encourage you this week, think through this. How do I think about 
the Christian faith? How do I communicate the Christian faith? And then ask, how do I do this? How do I seek holiness and how do I abstain from sin? What does that look like? And then bring those thoughts to men's and women's small group. Or get coffee with somebody and talk about how you can help one another do it together. That is what we're called to do, to do this together, to talk through how do we seek holiness and how do we abstain from sin? Essentially, how do we do the will of God? That's my challenge to you. Now what we see is that put on this way of thinking, it's our calling. But that doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that there's no cost to live this way. Actually, following Christ's way is not only obeying, it's obeying and suffering for it. Look at verse 4. Peter goes on to say, after we are to not live for human passions, but to live for the will of God, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, verse 3, and they malign you. Here we, re- we read the responses of others. And for those of you who came to faith as adults, you probably know this verse to be very true. Peter just explained the kind of sins that his audience was participating in before they were Christians. And once they became Christians, they stopped attending the temple rituals, and to use Peter's phrase, they stopped joining in the flood of debauchery. And so what happens? Their old drinking buddies call them up. Where are you at? What's going on? You're a different person. And then... That surprise transitions into, this is just a phase. This isn't true. Come on, be back who you were before. And then it goes into, oh, this is, this is really not true. Don't you know who you really are? Don't you remember what you used to do? It becomes a maligning and a blasphemy. Their genuineness was attacked. They were likely called hypocrites, liars, or fakes, The result of obeying the will of God is to be ostracized by your friends, neighbors, and maybe even family. And you know what they felt like? Exile. They felt like exile. They felt like who they truly were. They felt like they didn't fit in. They felt like those who were not part of the crowd, those who were different, those who were weird. And it's at this point whenever you are on the outside all of a sudden, that it becomes very attractive to just step back inside. Sin becomes attractive. It's much easier to just go along to get along than it is to maintain a pursuit of doing God's will. The suffering Christian's face, then, is a battle. That's why Peter's calling us to arm ourselves. It's a battle and it's a battle for your heart. Suffering like this tells us the lie that sin, it's better than following God's will. It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. As we see others' comfort and others' happiness, albeit fleeting, while we receive suffering from them, we will often find that we have to fight to keep 
believing, it is easy to begin to doubt that the cost is actually worth it. That's what Peter's telling his readers, and that's what we see and we know. It is worth, that it's worth being kind to your neighbor, even though they refuse to be kind back. That's worth showing mercy to that hateful family member to only be attacked. That it's worth not joining in the ridicule of your boss with your coworkers and to be singled out. That it's worth going the speed limit on 465 and to receive bad looks and horn blasts. It's hard whenever you're being maligned and ostracized to think that it's worth it. And this is why we have to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ because he didn't just arm himself with the desire to do the will of God. He did it despite the suffering that it required. In the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The greatest suffering is about to come upon him. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus suffered death for obeying the will of God. That is the mind that we have to arm ourselves with. First, that we are called to follow the will of God. And second, that we will suffer on account of our following the will of God. What this means is that suffering... As we follow the will of God, so I want to be abundantly clear here, not all suffering, suffering for obeying God's word. When we suffer for obeying God's word, it's not a problem. It's not an indicator that you are ignorant. Being alienated for courageously standing where scripture stands, being called backwards for holding to the biblical teaching on marriage, on gender and sexuality, whatever suffering it may be for holding scripture above opinion and culture is not a sign of error. It is evidence of Christ's work in you. As we face suffering instead of reverting back to sin, it is evidence that we have truly suffered with Christ and that we have truly ceased from sin. Back in verse 1, we read, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from the sin, has ceased from sin. In the first section, we saw that this is a reality because Jesus died on the cross, and in his death and in his crucifixion, we died to our sin. And at the same time, in light of that truth, that we are dead to sin, as we suffer for obeying God, God's will and Jesus, as Jesus himself did, it reveals the truth of our union to him. It reveals an inner reality that we truly have ceased from sin. Think of what Peter's saying, similar to how a parent, or if you are a parent, maybe you've said this. I heard it a lot growing up. Maybe I've used it a few times. But think of what Peter is saying, similar to how a parent will say, we don't do blank in this house. They jump on the bed. We don't jump on the bed in this house. To the immediate response of, well, little Johnny, Johnny does it in his house. To the immediate response of, well, son, Johnny's not a James, and Jameses don't jump on the bed. Heard that a few times. <laughs> in verses 1 to 4, Peter is doing the same thing. He is saying, Christian, you are a Christian. You are united to Christ's life 
his death and his resurrection by faith. That means you're a recipient of all the blessings and promises of being in Christ, one of which is you are dead to sin, that you have ceased from sin. That is true of you because you're a Christian, because you're in this house. And so in this house, we do not live for sin. And when you say no to sin, instead of, in, in the face of suffering, instead of giving into sin, when you say no to sin, it reveals that you are in this house, that you are a Christian. Our suffering in the flesh for obeying the will of God reveals that we have ceased from sin, that we have been released from its grip and every time we choose suffering over giving into sin, we show that Jesus has truly given us the power to say no. And that we can press on seeking holiness, even if we suffer for it. So we must remember Christ's work. That sin no longer has a hold of me. That that, that, that period of our life has passed away, as Peter says in verse 3. And we must put on the same mind of Christ and follow Christ's way. Following the will of God in and through the suffering that it brings upon us. Now, in the last two verses, what we see is that not only do we look backwards, right? We look back to what Christ has done. We look back to Christ's way as we walk forward. We don't just look backwards, we also look forward. Our last piece of armor is trusting that Christ has won as we look forward to his return. Look back at the text with me, starting in verse 5. So he's speaking of those who malign you. He says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So our last piece of armor for the battle of suffering is our hope. It's our hope, specifically our hope in Christ's return, in the justice and the life eternal with him. In verse 5, we see that those who malign you will give an account. What's interesting here is <clears throat> Peter uses the word for account that he used earlier in chapter 3 in verse 15. Whenever those who see you suffering, they will ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So Christian, you have to give an account today for the hope that you have. But those who are not in Christ will have to give an account on the day when he returns. And to you who are Christians, this is a great comfort. This is a great comfort. This is a hope that carries you through suffering. And it's not because they're going to get what's coming to them. It's because you're going to get what's coming to you in Christ. He's coming back. This is the hope that you have. That all the evil you see around you, that all the wrong that you receive, it's not for naught. All those times that you were maligned or singled out for holding to your faith, you will be vindicated 
as your Lord stands before you in front of all of creation and says, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That is the declaration that all of the suffering and sorrow was worth it because Jesus awaits you and he's coming to welcome you to himself. So Christian, as you're in the storm, as the tempest rages on, as the suffering and sorrow surround you, Look ahead to your Savior who will welcome you home. That is your hope as you face suffering. But to you who are not a Christian, verse 5 is a stark warning. It is a wake-up call, and it's an invitation. See, the Bible does not leave the future with uncertainty. The Bible is abundantly clear on what the future holds. Specifically, 1 Thessalonians 4, this is what the future holds. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Jesus is coming. And when he does... Everyone will see him, and he will come in his glory and in his victory. And when he comes, he will call for account. He will come as judge. Scripture explains that he is the one appointed by God the Father to judge the living and the dead. Meaning, it doesn't matter if you're alive or you're dead, all will be judged. Payment will be due, an account must be given. And his judgments are true and just. All will be judged, and they will be judged thoroughly and rightly. And friend, maybe you don't malign Christians. Like, okay, well, verse 5 is not talking about me because it's they, meaning those who malign Christians. I don't malign Christians. I'm nice to my Christian neighbor. But that is actually not the issue. Your treatment of Christians is not what saves you or condemns you. Sin is the issue. The presence of sin, and listen, friend, not in you, in all of us. The presence of sin in all of us is what condemns us. The fact that we seek our human passions rather than God's will. The fact that we look to our own way rather than following God's way. The fact that we say what's right and wrong, what's good and beautiful, instead of listening to what God says is right and wrong and good and beautiful. Ultimately, the fact that we obey my voice instead of God's voice, that is sin. There is not one of us in the world in all of history other than Jesus that can say, that is not in me. And what sin causes, among many things, ultimately, though, is condemnation. It is against a holy God who is eternal. And there will be a holy and eternal punishment for the offense. And there is no account that any can give. There's no list of deeds. There's no amount of money that you give to charity. There's no social advocacy. There's no being an overall good person that will settle the debt. But friend, there is one account. 
that settles. We've talked about it, or we've talked about him all morning. It is Jesus. His life was perfectly doing the will of God. Where we don't, he did. His death was taking the condemnation that our disobedience deserves. And his resurrection, friends, as we said earlier, his resurrection is the declaration that his life was enough and his death paid the fee and he is victorious. Through Jesus' suffering, his taking on our flesh, living in our weakness, but never sinning, and taking the death and condemnation that we have accrued, life is given to all who believe in his name. John 6 says, For I have come from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? We follow Christ's mind. He did the will of God, so Christian, follow the will of God. What was the will of God for Jesus? He goes on and says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. He's going to get very specific. What is the will of the Father? That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, the will of God is that everyone who looks upon the Son, their account is paid. That life is given. So if you look upon the Son, if you look upon him raised on the cross, hanging there, and recognize that that's my place, and he has paid my account in full. And if you look upon the Son who was raised from the dead, and you look at his glory and his victory, and you believe that his resurrection is a declaration that you too will rise. If you look upon the Son and you believe, friend, you are his, and he is yours forever. He has paid your debt, and he will never let you go. The judge who is coming to judge the living and the dead will say, not guilty, for you are washed by the blood of Jesus. This is why the gospel is preached. Verse six, for this is why the gospel is preached. Because judgment is coming, but eternal life is offered. Even if you die before Jesus returns, it says it's preached even to the dead. He's just talking about those who have heard the gospel, responded in faith, and died. It's, if you want to counter text, go to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Even if you die before Jesus' return, just like the judgment of Christ encompasses the living and the dead, friend, the promises of Christ are not nullified by your death. The dead will be raised. Justice will be declared. And eternal life will be given to all those who have looked upon the Son. There is such hope. This is your armor. You must, we must remember that Christ has accomplished effectively and forever the death of sin for his people. We must walk in the way in which Christ walked, doing the will of God, even when suffering says that sin is better. We follow Jesus because he has killed sin already for us. And as we face that suffering, friends, we look forward. We look forward to the hope that our Savior is coming. Before Gandalf left Aragon, after he told him to prepare for battle, he has to go run some errands, which is kind of the 
bad timing to run errands when a battle's coming, but Gandalf's known for that. He tells Aragorn, though, before he leaves, look to my coming at the first light on the fifth day at dawn, look to the east. One of the best lines in all of Lord of the Rings. Because as the battle waged on at Helm's Deep, as the suffering, the waves were crashing down, as the good guys, their numbers were plummeting, and the king just wants to give up and give in, Aragon held on to the hope, the promise, that at the first light, on the fifth day, from the east, Gandalf was coming. And he held the line, and he called others to join him. He remembered the promise. He trusted the coming, and he held the line. So Chapelwood, let us prepare for the battle of suffering. It's not a possibility. It's a sure battle in which we wage and we will continue to wage as we follow the will of God. So let us prepare for the battle of suffering, not with weapons of earth, not with words and wit, but let us remember Christ's work, let us follow Christ's way, and let us trust that Christ has won. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you this morning that our Savior is victorious. We thank you that we can look to the cross and we can know that sin has been defeated and overcome and its power is no longer potent over us. Father, we thank you that we have our Christ to follow, that he suffered leaving us an example. Would you, by your spirit, help us to remember these truths and to follow our king? Help us to obey you no matter the cost as we look to the promise of our victorious king, the promise that awaits, the pleasures forevermore, the joy of seeing our king and being with him forever when he comes back to us. Father, we pray that you would do all these things so that your glory would be known and experienced by us and those who do not yet know you. We pray this for Christ's name. Amen.